I greet you this morning in the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer. This morning we are continuing our summer worship series on I Believe, and we're looking at the basic beliefs of the Christian faith expressed in the Apostles' Creed. Today we affirm our faith in the resurrection of the body. Our scripture lesson comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that it does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Amen. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, wrote in a sermon, I am passing through life like an arrow through the air. I'm a spirit come from God and returning to God. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. We share Wesley's desire, and we recognize what 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says, we are aliens and strangers. We are passing through this world to the world beyond. Many of us grew up in the church singing songs like, I am bound for the promised land. We're marching to Zion when we all get to heaven and I'll fly away. In many ways, the Apostles' Creed ends where Easter begins. And today we are affirming our faith in the resurrection of the body. Now, many of us have memorized the Apostles' Creed and recited it over the years. Have you ever wondered why it doesn't simply say, we believe in the resurrection? Instead, there is a real emphasis here, the resurrection of the body. First and foremost, it refers to God raising Jesus the Christ from the grave out of death to life. When you read the Gospels, and the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, it becomes clear our Lord possessed some form of a body. He walked with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and that evening broke bread with them. In the upper room, he told Thomas to come and touch the scars in his hands and side. He shared meals with his disciples. The Lord on the far side of the tomb had defeated sin and death and proclaimed forgiveness and life. And Jesus is the firstborn among the dead. We are Christ's brothers and sisters. We too are promised the resurrection of the body. 
that we will receive some form of spiritual renewed body that is different from our current bodies. And the older I get, the better news that sounds. Paul used the analogy of a seed being sown in the soil and it coming up a rich harvest. He said, what is sown perishable is raised imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in honor. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. What is sown a natural body is raised a spiritual body. This belief in part recognizes that God honors who we are as unique individuals and that every part of us is worth saving. In heaven's kingdom, everybody is somebody, and everybody is somebody. We will be renewed. What that looks like, we don't exactly know. In my mind's eye, I am going to have Chris Hemsworth's body. <laughs> Freddie Freeman's athletic ability, Paul Newman's eyes, Tom Cruise's smile, Hugh Jackman's charisma, and of course, my own adorable personality. But that is our hope of glory, that Jesus Christ, the firstborn of the dead, promises to us that we're given this gift of life everlasting and the resurrection of the body. Of course, part of what we're talking about is that we are a heaven-bound people. It's one of those central promises of our faith that when we die, we go on to be with the Lord. And yet sometimes we're hesitant to talk about heaven in the life of the church. Even 40 plus years out of seminary, I don't recall the subject getting much attention in school. I have a few books in my study on the topic, and I think there are a variety of reasons we don't discuss it more. First of all, if we're honest, it's a little confusing. There's a book I've used throughout the series called The Creed by Dr. Luke Timothy Johnson, and he wrote, the vast majority of Christians are simply confused. They recite the words of the creed, but they don't really understand them. They talk about these four last things of death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Three of those are fearsome, and the fourth of heaven is vague. Secondly, and I've recognized this before, you can't talk about heaven without talking about hell. And none of us are very comfortable with that topic. Some of us grew up in a time where heaven and hell were the ultimate carrot and stick to get people to the altar. And if you heard me preach at all, you know that I come back again and again to God's grace and I hesitate to get people into heaven by scaring the other out of them. The third reason we don't talk more about heaven, and this is convicting to me, you can determine whether it is for you, is that we've got an ongoing love affair with this world that our materialistic abundance causes us to focus on this world rather than the world to come, and we are tempted to think of ourselves as earthbound settlers rather than heaven-bound pioneers. And first and last, I suppose there's just so much we don't know. German theologian Reinhold Niebuhr says the Bible says very little about the temperature of hell or the furniture of heaven. And even Paul, when he begins to talk about this topic, recognizes that ultimately he's trying to express the inexpressible. He wrote to the church in 1 Corinthians, No ear is seen, no ear is heard, no mind is conceived. What God has prepared for God's people, we see through a dark glass dimly. 
But one day, we will see face to face, and we will know God even as we are known by God. But this morning, as we profess our faith in the resurrection of the body, there are some things we can affirm. Let's begin with the basic question of what is heaven? And that inspires all sorts of different images and emotions in our lives. And oftentimes we do have to resort to the language of poetry, of simile, a metaphor. C.S. Lewis put it quite beautifully when he said, Heaven is that remote music we are born remembering. That we understand it intuitively, instinctively. Oftentimes we talk about the heaven is God's home. And that's true, but it can also be misleading. Because we believe God is present with us in all times and in all places. But in some way we will dwell in God's house forever in fullness and in completeness. There was a pastor doing a children's sermon. And you know, when you ask kids questions, it is always dangerous. And he asked what do you have to get, do to get to heaven? And one little boy threw up his hand and he said, die. <laughs> That's a theologian in training right there. You've got to die to self. You've got to live for Christ. You've got to accept what has happened at the cross and at the empty tomb for yourself to ask for forgiveness of sins and of life everlasting. We know what's heaven. How do you get there? There was an interesting Barna survey a while back that said 80% of Americans believe in heaven. 70% believe they've got a good chance of going there. I don't know what the other 10% are thinking. But if we are willing to trust our lives to God, that's how we're heaven bound. Colin Williams wrote, this life is only a training ground for the one that is to come. That is our focus. Read the Gospels, read the epistles. That is the focus of our lives. Now, we don't need to be so heaven-bound that we're no earthly good. But this world is not our home. And we're called to cast off the baggage of sinfulness along the way so that we might make this journey toward God, recognizing, and we'll talk about this more next week, that life eternal is not simply life after death. It begins in this world in our relationship with the Lord. Another question is, what happens when I die? Human beings naturally fear death. And here's the next part. Even the most devout of Christians can fear the process of dying. And when you read Scripture, the witness is a little bit unclear of what exactly happens the moment we die. There are suggestions that our spirit goes to be with the Lord, and then we are raised with new bodies on the final day. But the scriptural witness is not clear. Because again, we're trying to describe the indescribable. What we do know is that our Lord is awaiting us. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to keep that which I have entrusted to him to that final day. I've shared this story before. Every parent here could tell the exact same story. There were times when our children were quite young that they would wake up in the middle of the night from a nightmare. And they would yell, Mommy, Daddy. And we would awake and call back to them. And then all of a sudden you'd hear this. 
little feet coming running down the hall through the darkness, launching themselves through the air and landing in the middle of the bed between the two of us. And it always struck me that they were terrified of the darkness. But they were willing to run down that hall because they knew who was awaiting them at the far end. If you push me, that's my image of what dying is like. We go into the darkness knowing there is one on the far side who is waiting to receive us in love and with grace. People also ask, will I know and be known? And the Bible is clear on that, that God raises us as unique individuals. We will be transformed, but we will know one another. Our relationships will be renewed and restored. Uh, one of the images often used in the Bible is that heaven's going to be like a great reunion. When those who have gone before us and those who come after us gather together before God's throne now and forever. And I'm occasionally asked, and not just by adults, if our pets go to heaven. Again, the Bible is largely silent on that topic. Isaiah does talk about the lion and lamb laying down together. I think there's at least a hint there. I'll tell you Bill Birch's personal theology. Sam Birch, the Yorkshire Terrier, who was part of our family for 15 years and died this past winter, is going to spend eternity with me because dog is God spelled backwards. And if you want to experience God's grace and God's love, go get a dog because they love you no matter what. And then there's that question we kind of started with is what is heaven like? And that just frees our imaginations. And we hear all those stories about uh, gates of pearl and walking down golden streets and mansions of glory and angels lounging on clouds, polishing their halos while they play their harps. I've got a friend of mine who says, I don't know what it's going to be like, but I know I'm going to like it. Some people say, well, it's not just an endless church service, is it? <laughs> With a never-ending sermon. <laughs> Think about those moments in life when you felt most complete, most whole, the person that you were created to be, filled with joy, Love, acceptance, peace, serenity, fulfillment. That is but a hint of the glory that will be ours when we dwell with God forever. When the image is most often used, it is like going home. John chapter 14 is a passage we often use in funerals here at Northside. And I'm going to give it a slightly different slam by using the Living Bible translation. Jesus said, There are many homes up there where my father lives, and I'm going to prepare them for your coming. And when everything is ready, I'll come and get you so that you can always be with me where I am. Arnold Schopenhauer said that every parting is a foretaste of death, and every coming together again is a foretaste of life abundant. The German language has a word that I will not begin to try to pronounce, but its rough English translation is a homesickness for a place you've never been before. That's a beautiful image of we as God's people yearning, leaning, striving towards that world to come while we live in the world which is ours. Like John Wesley, we are passing through this life like an arrow 
through the air. And the flight goes quickly. We are spirits come from God. We are returning to God. In my prayers, we want to know one thing. The way to heaven. How to land safe on that happy shore. Lord, may be it so in your life as well as in mine. Let us pray. Lord of the resurrection, hear the cry of your children as we live in this fallen world. Forgive us for the times we become so entranced with the things that engage our five senses and we take our eyes off of you, off of the journey, off of the destination and on the things about us. Remind us time and again, we are aliens and strangers in this world. This is not our home. We are pilgrims making our progress towards the world to come. Teach us to place our eyes upon you, to serve you daily in this world so that in the world to come, we might inherit life everlasting. We thank you for the words of the hope of glory that is ours through Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we make our prayer. Amen.